The following message is from the Church at Greer Station. For more information, visit tcgreerstation.com. So the gospel teaches us that each of us are sinners and that our hearts and our bodies and our planet are broken. The gospel begins with the bad news that all is broken, beginning with me, beginning right here in my chest. We require forgiveness. We require forgiveness and each of us requires restoration, just like everything else. We need to be forgiven for our guilt and we need to be restored to a place of health, restored back to life with God and life with one another, restored to our purpose as human beings and our planet itself groans with eager expectation to be restored. But the gospel also tells us that God, from love, sends his son, Jesus. The father who is eternally loved and delighted in the son, sends his son to take on flesh, to live the human life, to experience all the things that we experience, for himself to be broken on a cross, to enter into death, to be buried, so that he could be raised to new life, installed as king, and go about restoring everything as it was always meant to be. The gospel also tells us that Jesus sends that same Holy Spirit that he he and the Father have delighted in from eternity past. He sends the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts, to make us like himself, to begin the process of restoration in us. When we believe on Jesus, not when we do enough good works, not when we get in God's good graces, but when we look to Jesus and we acknowledge our brokenness and our sinfulness and our guilt, when we look to him, we're forgiven and we're given the power to be restored by the Holy Spirit. The scriptures teach us that the Spirit animates us for good works, for holiness, and for love. There's some great scriptures in the New Testament that say things like this. This is from 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus, says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children... Don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you are ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. You've been redeemed, Peter says. So abandon your former ways and live with the grain, live consistent with who you are now in Christ and and what Christ is making you by his spirit. Jesus himself says this in Matthew 5. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. You're hungry and you're thirsty for righteousness and for holiness, for love and selflessness and good deeds. If you're hungry, hungry and thirsty for that, and hungry too, <laughs> Jesus will give it to you. The Spirit will give it to you. It, he will work it out in your heart. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. And it's like anybody who's serious about thinking about who they were prior to meeting Jesus, like this is good news. 
If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We are the, we are the, the foretaste of what God's going to do for everything. He's making us new, and he's making us into new creations. He's going to make everything new once again. And then I love this. This is from Psalm 1. The psalmist is, is talking about the, the blessed life that is the righteous life. And speaking of the righteous person, he says this in Psalm 1.3. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit and its season and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prospers. He uses this image of a sturdy, vibrant, full, fresh, alive, prosperous tree. And he says, that's the righteous life. Like a tree on March 6th, 75 degrees, a tree planted by streams of water, full and vibrant and alive, that is what the righteous person looks like. But here's the question for us. How does all of it work out in the land of Hevel? What does it look like to be people of righteousness when everything is vapor? If this is your first week with us, Hevel is the Hebrew word that's used over and over again in the book of Ecclesiastes, which can be translated something like vapor or mist. And there's a couple of different ways the preacher kind of goes with this metaphor. He says everything is vaporous in the sense that uh, our lives are short. Our, our li- James picks up on this in James uh, chapter 1, that our lives are like a mist. It comes and it goes in a hurry. He says that everything's vaporous. It also means that sometimes things are inscrutable. It's kind of like if, you, if you're driving through dense fog and you can't quite out, uh, you know, make out directly where you're going. He says sometimes life is like that. It's, it's foggy. It's, it's misty. It's vaporous. And he says it's, it's vaporous also in the sense that at the end of our days, no matter how well we have lived, no matter what we've given ourselves over to, no matter how uh, wealthy and prosperous and fruitful our lives may be, at the end of the day, naked we came, naked we go. And so he says everything is hevel. Everything is vapor. So in light of the fact that we're confined under the sun in this vaporous, flawed, imperfect, crooked system, how are we to be holy in the hevel? Knowing things are often unclear, knowing that we aren't yet perfected, Psalm 103, which Jim read from a moment ago, says that we are dust, right? Knowing that we are dust, knowing that we are fallen and that we are frail, how are we to pursue righteousness? Now, the preacher gives us in this passage what one uh, uh, commentator called moral realism. It's a realistic perspective on our traits, uh, our pursuit rather, of the traits of the Holy Spirit. Moral realism. It's a passage that's pretty jarring if you've not read it before. It's, it's, a, it's, one that sort of comes out of, it's one that sort of comes out of left field. But I think it's filled with a kind of incredible freedom. Let's look again at chapter 17, beginning verse 15. The preacher writes, In my vain or vaporous life, I have seen everything. All right, so the first thing to, to draw our attention to here is when he says vain life, we want to be careful. Because remember, vanity is not always the best reading of the word hevel. He's not saying his pointless life. There there are no pointless, meaningless lives. There there are no vain lives. Every soul, every person is forever, and every soul, every person matters. So he's not saying in my vain, pointless, meaningless life. He's saying in my vaporous life, he's seen everything. Specifically, a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness And there is a wicked man who prolongs his death in his evil doing. Now last week, Aaron taught on the opening 14 verses of this chapter. 
The opening 14 verses of this chapter are devoted to uh, considering death and how death sort of distills our vision, we might say, and how death makes us wise. When we think about the fact that we are all terminally ill and that every one of us will die, it helps us to sort of distill our focus on the things that are most essential. But this section of, uh, of uh, Ecclesi- Ecclesiastes chapter 7 ends with this celebration of the good of wisdom. Let's look again at verses 11 and 12, just up a few verses. The preacher says, Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see, uh, to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. All right, so he's saying that there is an advantage to pursuing a wise, or we might say righteous, or we might say holy life. There are benefits that come from living this way. I mean, the, the book of Proverbs is devoted, uh, is devoted to this theme. Like, you, you live wisely, life tends to go well for you. That's the sort of arithmetic that the book of Proverbs works with. But the preacher from Ecclesiastes, he wants us to have no illusions. He says these, these things are good. Yes, wisdom is good. However, wisdom doesn't guarantee anything against calamity or death. Proverbs, the wise, the righteous prosper. The righteous dwell in the land of the living. Psalm 1, the righteous are like a tree planted by streams of water and everything they do prospers. You're sturdy, you're alive, you're fresh, you're climbable. But Ecclesiastes says, sometimes... The wise and the righteous die young in their righteousness, and the wicked man lives a long, wicked life. Um, I heard a a Bible person one time say, um, use this analogy to describe the Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. He said, Proverbs is like a young, ambitious uh, 20-something who's just getting started, and he knows how the world works. But then Ecclesiastes is like this 45-year-old, cynical, beret-wearing you know, existential French philosopher, cynic figure. And so it's like if Proverbs says, this is how the world works, Ecclesiastes says, except when it doesn't, right? I, my, uh, one of my language professors in uh, undergrad would always say, these are the rules of Greek grammar, except when they're not. It's like, and English is kind of that way too. It's like, the, this is the O-U and the G-H, they're pronounced this way, except when they're not. And that's sort of what Ecclesiastes is dealing with here. Like there's a, there's a, a way to understand Wisdom. Wisdom is prosperous. Wisdom uh, leads to the good life, except when it doesn't. He says, in my vain life, I've seen everything. I've seen everything. A righteous man who perishes in his righteousness and a wicked man who prolongs his life in evil doing. Moral realism, right? Sometimes the righteous die young in in obscurity while the wicked lives long lives of luxury and influence. Here's a first big takeaway for us. Wisdom is certainly an advantage, but it doesn't guarantee anything. Wisdom is an advantage, but it doesn't guarantee anything. Stuart Weeks, a commentator, said, Wisdom offers an advantage to the wise man, listen, but not in any way an escape from the extinction that awaits every human, wise or foolish. And so what I think the preacher is sort of getting ready to say here is that there's an overcommitment to righteousness or a kind of intensity that we can give to the pursuit of wisdom that thinks it's getting an angle on the hevel, that thinks it's sort of figuring out a way to, to, 
to, to get out from underneath the effects of living in a broken and fallen and hevel-like world. If I do right, surely, surely God will grant me the outcome that he knows I want. Surely, right? Like if I, if I pursue wisdom and righteousness, if I do all the things right, if I check all my boxes, surely the Lord is going to bless me with the life that I want. Tit for tat. You scratch my back, I scratch yours. Surely that's how this thing operates. And I think the preacher is wanting to, to head that little tendency off and say, this is how the world works, except when it doesn't. Ultimately, the Lord does what, what he wishes for each of our lives. Now, I remember a couple of years ago, I was teaching some college students, um, and I, I mean, I, I taught on uh, the Gospel of John chapter one, and I remember you know, preparing for this message, I was like pouring my heart and soul out for this message I was talking about, actually very similar to an Advent message I gave just a couple of weeks ago, uh, talking about how it, uh, John tells us that if we want to know what God's like, the answer is to go look at Jesus. John 1.18, Jesus exegetes the Father for us. He, he unpacks and unveils all that the Father is. It's like, you want to know what the Father's like? Go look at Jesus. And I gave this soul-stirring, clear, you know, convicting, powerful call to look at Jesus and be saved. It was, it was excellent, I'm sure. And I told the, the students that were in attendance, I said, if you want to talk any more about this, I'm going to be at this Waffle House down the road. Give me about 10 minutes, I'll get to this Waffle House, and we can talk about it. We can talk about the, what it means to follow Jesus. We can talk about the gospel. And so I go, and I show up to this Waffle House, and I'm excited because I see a couple of students that are there. And so I go sit at the table with them, and we start you know, talking about like, the message or whatever. And then the, the moment finally comes, and the guy says, all right, now here's the thing that we want to talk to you about. And I was like, all right the logos and the, you know, the son relating to the father forever and eternity and the way he, I was, I was ready for it. He says, here's the, here's the thing that we really want to know. How do you get girlfriends? <laughs> How do you get girlfriends? And what he's saying was, he, he, the two guys end up sort of going in more, more in depth. They said, we've obeyed God. We've done everything that he's asked of us. We don't do the party scene. We've, we've saved ourselves in the way that the scriptures teach us that we should. We were good youth group kids, but we don't have girlfriends. And we'd like to, we'd like to sort of get your take on what the problem is with that. Because we've, we've done all of the things that our, our youth pastors and our pastors have told us to do. So what are we missing? And, and I say that jokingly, and I, and I, I kind of make light of that particular situation because I was so caught off guard by that conversation. I don't remember what I said, but I'm, I'm also confident it was excellent. Um, <laughs> But, but it's important because that is a great, very legitimate question that hits us hard. Um, you know, again, in no way am I making light of what these guys were wrestling through. But my point here is that I think they were operating with this almost transactional take on wisdom and righteousness. We do the wisdom thing, you do the blessing thing. That's how this works. Wisdom is certainly an advantage, but it doesn't guarantee anything. Not a long life not a large estate, not a big family. The preacher wants to temper our expectations a bit. Now, I often wonder, even, gosh, more seriously, I often wonder about, we have friends and family, I know of, of folks in this room that are personally affected by, by people who have deconstructed or deconverted or whatever you, you want to call it, if you're familiar with that language. And as I was thinking about this, this passage, I just wonder how many of these folks who have left the faith they felt like they lived the way that they were supposed to, like their youth pastors and their preachers and their parents taught them to live, 
And the result is that when they got into adulthood, they were given a life they didn't want. And then they felt like what they were sold in their preteen, teenage, adolescent years was a bill of goods. And every situation is different, and I'm not, I don't, I'm not casting blame on any particular person. The Lord is going to sort all of that out. But we have to really wrestle with what's being said here. That a life of wisdom and obedience to God is good, it is right, it is an advantage, but it doesn't guarantee anything. And we need a kind of sober maturity about that truth. Verse 16, this one's pretty jarring. The preacher says, be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? How does that land on you upon first reading? Be not overly righteous. Don't be too. It's like be wise, but don't be too wise. Don't be overly righteous. Don't make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Maybe if you're like me, your first thought was to go to passages like 1 Peter chapter 1, which says, quoting Leviticus, be holy for I am holy. It's like, what do you mean don't be too righteous and too wise? The book of Proverbs is about how to be exceptionally wise. What do you mean don't be too righteous and too wise? I think two things are being said here. I think the first thing is what we, we just made mention of. It's possible to be too righteous and too wise and destroy yourself by assuming more from wisdom than it actually offers. I think that's the first thing that he's saying here, is that wisdom and righteousness is an advantage, but it's not a guarantee. There are limits to what we can expect from wisdom. There are limits to what li- wisdom will deliver in this life. Sometimes the righteous die young and the wicked die in ripe old age. We can destroy ourselves by assuming more from wisdom than it actually offers. I think the second thing he's saying here is that we can be paralyzed by a kind of spiritual hypochondria, for lack of a better term. We can be paralyzed by a kind of spiritual hypochondria. Being, having this extremely sensitive conscience that borders on panic at the thought of sin and judgment, and it just takes you captive, and it paralyzes you with the need to, quote, do it well, unquote. There's actually a condition that clinical psychologists refer to as scrupulosity. It is this obsessive need to perform religious duties out of an oversized dread of God. Now, as a kid, I grew up in a tradition that you know, really rightfully emphasized the need for each person to repent and believe in the gospel and would routinely call people forward. They'd say, you need to turn from your sin and come to Christ. And I found myself in these services where there were always these calls being made to the altar, and I was always 110% of the time convinced I was the person that the preacher was talking to. In every instance, he'd say, if your palms are sweaty, then you're spinning a mom's spaghetti, <laughs> you know, it's time for you to come forward. And I was always, that's me, you know, always convinced that this was me that was being spoken to. I am not a Christian. Well into my adult years, I would struggle deeply with any kind of assurance of salvation. So I was baptized multiple times. I went to the altar all the time. I prayed the sinner's prayer nightly just to be sure. And maybe if you grew up in church, I would assume you probably had a similar experience. Just as I am rolls around, and here we go again. <laughs> you know. Now, did I need to repent in these instances? Absolutely. Did I need to grow in righteousness and goodness? Yes, I can tell you, yes, I needed to grow in holiness. But did I also need to learn how to both rest in God and have a realistic assessment of my human condition? Yes. 
Maybe that's you. Maybe you too suffer from a kind of spiritual hypochondria. It's whatever the equivalent of going on WebMD and concluding that you're, you're dead next week is, kind of in the spiritual realm. Like maybe you have that as well. Maybe you find yourself kind of constantly paralyzed by the fear of being unwise or behaving sinfully or giving bad counsel. Have you, have you ever been stuck in deliberation, like so stuck in wanting to do it right or be wise or do it well that you actually never did anything? Once again, maybe I'm projecting my personal issues, but this has very much been the case for me. And there's a figure in church history who also details his battle with these kinds of issues as well. In the 16th century, there was a guy named Martin Luther. Martin Luther was a Protestant reformer, the guy who sort of kick-started the Protestant Reformation. And he made this really bombastic statement I'm going to have on the screen. He said this, be a sinner and sin boldly. Be a sinner and sin boldly. I've seen, I saw eyebrows raised and heads cocked and a little bit of wind taken out of the room. How does that land on you when he says that? What do you make of that? I think rightfully when we read that, our guard goes up big time because we read passages like Romans chapter 6 verse 1 which says, am I to sin? Is my sin to increase so that God's grace may abound? And Paul the apostle says, by no means, absolutely not. This is, this is licentiousness. We, we shouldn't think like this. But I don't think that's what Luther is saying. Rather, Luther struggled deeply against something like spiritual hypochondria, scrupulosity as a monk. He wasn't just paralyzed by fear of sin. He was agonized by the thought of his sinfulness and his inability to live perfectly righteous. He was so consumed with confession and so dreaded that he would leave something out that when he was a Catholic monk, he literally spent hours in the confessional trying to think of everything that he did. And it got so bad, at one point, according to stories, his local priest was like, dude, get a hobby. <laughs> Leave me alone. Like, work this out yourself. It drove the priest up the wall. And, he, and Luther says that during this time of his life, he was so agonized that he even hated God. He hated the thought of God because all he could think of God as was this uh, eager-to-condemn judge. But later in life, he discovered the good news of the gospel of Jesus, that Jesus dies for our sin, that God's punishment for our sin is applied to Jesus. Jesus happily embraces us. We are eternally, permanently, forever forgiven in Christ. And Luther said that when he discovered the gospel, the doors of paradise swung open by the Holy Ghost, and he walked in. Here's the rest of that quote. Be a sinner and sin boldly, but let your trust in Christ be stronger. And rejoice in Christ, who is the victor over sin, death, and the world. Luther's saying that we have been given freedom, not a freedom to sin, but a freedom from a kind of paralysis that is so consumed with the fear of getting it wrong that we can't function. Live with all of your might and trust Jesus as bigger and stronger than your capacity for boneheadedness. There's there's a kind of assurance and certainty, not in ourselves, but in the big, strong graciousness of Jesus that sets us free. By grace, through Jesus, our sins are forgiven. This is the good news of the gospel. Rest in it and be at peace, we say each week. Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? There's a certain degree of accepting our limits and accepting the fact that we are wicked and there, there's a ceiling to actually how righteous we can get this side of eternity that actually frees us up. Verse 17. 
the preacher says. You know, lest we think we should go full send, you know, life is a crapshoot anyway, so why not just live however I want? Verse 17. Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? Look, he says, we are wicked. Uh, the, the doctrine of total depravity isn't that each of us is Adolf Hitler. Rather, the doctrine of total depravity is that each of us own the hardware required to manipulate and abuse and exploit others and reject God's ways. And he says, there's an inevitability to our wickedness. We, we, we don't have no illusions about our moral status. But there's no reason to be a fool. Though we recognize the limits of, of, what it, of our righteousness on this side of eternity, there's no reason to be a fool, he says. Let's have some sense and try and curb the best we're able our sinful tendencies. Or to say it another way, wisdom doesn't guarantee anything, but it's certainly an advantage. Wisdom doesn't guarantee anything, but it's certainly an advantage. A good life is a wise life. There is freedom and goodness that comes from living and pursuing righteousness. All right, so how, how are we to respond to this? Well, he tells us in verse 18. And I love the imagery he uses. He says, it is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand. With each hand, take hold of this advice. Don't hold back. He says, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. For the one who fears God, who takes hold of both of these, God will sustain you in both your righteousness and your wickedness. The fear of God will sustain you in both. I think our takeaway is, is said really well by a commentator, a guy named Alex Kirk. He said this, In this hevel life, you do better to practice humble righteousness and accept that you are wicked and leave all things to God. How great is that? In this hevel life, you do better to practice humble righteousness and accept that you're wicked and leave all things to God. Practice humble righteousness. You know, I love this phrase. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. Long for the holiness of God. Make it your life's work to 2 Peter 3.18. Grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus. Make it your burning passion. Make it your vision. May, may, that, may it be so for us that we run after this with intensity and with clarity and with joy. But may we, may we do so with perspective and humility, with an awareness on our limits, with an awareness of our fallenness, with our awareness of our moment-by-moment moment need for God's grace, as Jim mentioned a moment ago. Verse 23 of this same chapter. He's talking about wisdom. He's, he says, all, all this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been far off and deep, very deep, who can find it out? He says, in going after wisdom, I realize that I can't ever attain it. I can't actually ever arrive as it relates to wisdom and righteousness. It's always just a hair too far out of reach, too elusive, too deep to be reached. Of course, he's not saying that we can't have any of it, but he's saying that we're never going to arrive this side of eternity. So we must practice righteousness, but do so humbly. Not self-righteous and haughty, propping ourselves up like the Pharisees. Not demanding something from righteousness that it can't give. But in a Christ-bought freedom and confidence and God's commitment towards an adoration of his people. Practice righteousness humbly. Secondly, accept that you're wicked. Now, imagine for, for 
uh, a room with this many folks in it, that probably lands on some of us very differently. There's some of us that are well aware of the wickedness that resides in our heart. There's others of us that it takes a little bit more convincing to get there. But I love this pairing of verses in chapter 7, verse 19 and 20. The preacher says, Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. We're getting our Proverbs on again. Wisdom gives strength more than city officials. And yet, verse 20, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. And yet, surely there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Wisdom makes us strong, and yet we are all, even the wise among us, still infected with and afflicted by the fall. Pursue wisdom and righteousness, but who among us does good exclusively? Who among us doesn't need the confession and assurance week by week? He says this at the end of chapter 7. This is a little bit tricky, starting verse 27. He says, Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. All right, so he's saying he's looking out, the best reading of this passage is that he's looking out amongst his cronies and his harem. And he says, of the, the women, we know how legendarily bad taste and women Solomon had. He says, amongst the, the thousand women who made up my harem, I don't, see, I don't see anyone who's righteous. He's like, I look at a thousand uh, men, my counselors and, and uh, uh, understudies, and it's like, I found one in a thousand. The point that he's making here is that righteousness and wickedness, uh, or wickedness rather, is elusive. Righteousness rather is elusive and wickedness infects each of us. And he arrives at this point in verse 29. God made man upright, but they have sought out Many schemes. In other words, we must accept that we are schemers. We must be skeptical of our motives. We must give up notions of perfectibility in ourselves, in our spouse, in our children, in our roommates. We must be very, very quick to identify the ways in our own hearts in which we want to manipulate and twist and guard ourselves. I love this counsel in verse 21, chapter 7. He says, do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. How helpful is that advice? Don't take things that people say to heart, because you might hear something. And if you take things to heart and you hear something, it's going to crush you. But look what he says in verse 22. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. Therefore, don't take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. He says, how many times have you gotten all fired up in an argument and said something that you later regretted? Something harsh that you knew would be hurtful and you really wished you could reel it back. The preacher's saying, don't take offense when people say hurt, hurtful things to you because you know what it's like to say things you regret. It's brilliant. He's saying, recognize the limits of your righteousness and see that you are afflicted. And listen, he says, look at your neighbor and extend them patience because they are just as sick as you are. And here's a revolutionary thought. What if a strong doctrine of total depravity actually made us more gracious? A recognition of your neighbor's co-fallenness actually helps to build some resiliency and patience with one another, doesn't it? 
So we must practice humble righteousness. We must accept the fact that we're wicked. And we must leave all things to God. Trust that he will sort everything out in the end. The length of your days, the getting of girlfriends, the being successful, the very shape of your life. Trust that the Lord is big, he's strong, he's good, and he's sovereign over all of it. I trust that the Lord is big enough, uh, big enough to bring us to our completion. One of my favorite passages is Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, where Paul says to the Philippian church, I am confident in this, that he who started a good work in you will bring it to the day of completion. What, what seat on the bus are you filling in that little scripture? We are on the receiving end of God's goodness and graciousness to us by his spirit to make us into his image and to finish what he started in us. There's more to that Luther quote. I'm going to read a little bit more. He says, be a sinner and sin boldly, but let your trust in Christ be stronger and rejoice in Christ who is the victor over sin, death, and the world. He says, we will commit sins while we are here, for this life is not a place where justice resides. We, however, says Peter in 2 Peter 3, are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where justice will reign. We are to pursue righteousness in the land of heaven, but to do so looking for another land. There's coming a day when we will shed all that's broken. We will shed our flesh and we will be made new. You and I will be more full and free and vibrantly colored and alive than we've ever been when Christ returns and he completes his work in us. He he frees us from our broken bodies, our wickedness from our scheming. He will restore us to what we have always been made to be by his grace. And this is the, the Christian hope. Is that while we're being worked on in the meantime, there's coming a day when we will be delivered. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, Paul says in Romans 7. May we practice humble righteousness, accept that we're wicked, and leave all things to God, especially the happy ending to this story. The next few moments, we're going to just pause before we sing again. Uh, in, in those moments where we pause, what we, we hope happens week, uh, week after week when we kind of create that space is for us to just sit and reflect for a moment on the things that have been said. Now, in your bulletin, we often provide questions for reflection that are just intended to help think through further applying the things that have said from, from, from these scriptures. Uh, so in the, these next few moments before the band comes up and as the band kind of gives us some space, Ask the Lord to work and to to speak and and give you clarity on those things that that he wants to give you clarity on. And that's the spirit to work in your heart. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do pray with confidence. Confidence in your righteousness. And we pray... um, confident in what your word says, that when we, when we place our faith in you, that we are united to you and that we are given access to the Father. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would work your Holy Spirit in our hearts, that you would work out righteousness and holiness and love and compassion and grace. We pray that you would work all of these things out in us. 
And we pray that you would give us a kind of humble realism about our state, that we would take to heart the things that the preacher says in Ecclesiastes. We pray that we would hunger and thirst for righteousness. And we pray that you would satisfy us, Jesus. I pray for uh, any folks who are in our midst tonight who have not yet believed in the gospel, who have never who have never owned their guilt and received forgiveness from Jesus. Pray that your spirit would open their hearts, that they would see the, the beauty of the gospel, would see the beauty of Christ. And we pray for our church, that you would make us a, a joyfully, humbly obedient group of sinners and saints. We love you. We pray all of this in Christ's name.